Hello, and welcome to The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law and today crypto law. On this episode, we will discuss the blockchain, a technology that has exploded onto the scene in recent years and will only become more prominent as we move into the future. The issues we will cover on this episode are on the perfect crossroads of law and gambling. Indeed, given the extreme fluctuation of some digital assets we will discuss, I believe this episode is a must-listen for any gambler, and given the complex legal challenges to come, any lawyer as well. In what other space could we be discussing a small, pixelated digital image akin to a stick figure that was recently sold for nearly $8 million? And I'm extremely excited to be joined by Natasha Bleicher. She is my colleague at Herbert Smith Freehills and the firm's global head of digital law, a true expert in this space. I'm thrilled to have her on the pod. Natasha, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about the blockchain. Everyone's heard of this by now, but but what is it? How would you define it? Well, I'll probably do something a little bit different to what you've heard because I have two reasons. One is that I've been explaining what a blockchain is for a few years now, and I have realized that the, the terribly technical definitions tend to leave people more puzzled than they start. And the second reason is I'm a mum and I've got four kids. And I found that if I explain things to people the same way as I would to my children, they tend to hit better. So let me give you an attempt at something that might sound a little bit different to what anybody else is telling you a blockchain is. First of all, I'll start by saying a blockchain is not a blockchain is not a blockchain. So they are not all the same. The actual technical architecture of blockchains can be quite different. But there are three basic premises that you can look at. And if you have these three things, you tend to be getting something close to what people are talking about calling a blockchain. One is about the way that data is stored. So most data to date has been stored in a centralized way. That is, think of it as a honeypot. All the data is owned or controlled by one source in one place. A blockchain is different because it's distributed. It means that different servers in different places hold the data. So that's point one. So a traditional data server would be at the headquarters of a company or an email server or something like this, whereas with the blockchain, it's everywhere? Absolutely correct. And there's there's a bit of nuance in there because there's a difference between it just um, being in one place or multiple places as an act of ownership and control or it being in a physical single space because the cloud itself and putting data up into the cloud actually moved it to multiple places in some instances, but still under the control of a centralized group, for example, Amazon or IBM. But this is a way of saying, take that data and put it in lots of different places. So that's one part of a blockchain. The second part is something that's quite organic. And it's something that I like to call the DNA factor of blockchain. So one of the problems with digital assets that the blockchain tries to solve is that they are, I suppose you could say, you can reproduce them endlessly. And one thing that I hope we come back to in this podcast over and over again is people like to own stuff and people like to understand what the four walls of the things they own are. So when it comes to a blockchain and it comes to something's digital, they call it a double spend problem. It means that if you own something digital, it's hard to get your arms around it because people can endlessly reproduce it. So this DNA methodology inside the ledger or the way of recording data is such that I take 
a whole bunch of transactions and data around a whole bunch of transactions and I bundle them all up together. So almost think about it like a, a zip file. I take all those transactions and I bundle them up into a piece of data and I call that a block. I take that block and that block might be up to a certain amount of megabyte of data and then I put an algorithmic hash over that block. So imagine the zip file to have a number attached to it called something like N3263P. That is the identifier of that block. And you can't hack that. That's the first instance you can't hack that because you're applying an algorithm over all those transactions sitting in that block. Now what happens next is the magic in the ledger. And it's what's very similar to DNA is that the next step is I go forward in time and I have a whole bunch more of more transactions. And they could be 20 discrete transactions, they could be 100 discrete transactions. But what I do with them is again, I zip file them. But the thing I do here when I zip file all these new transactions is I reach back to the previous block and that special identifying number and I put it as a new piece of information inside together with all the information that I've had in this new block B. So suddenly block A zipped and given a special identifying code, that identifying code is one piece of information bundled in together with all the other transactions in block B. So that is this immutable record because when I get to block C and D and E and F, they represented history of all the blocks and generations that have come before me. And that's why I say it's like DNA. So you, are you and you have, for example, all the epigenetic changes that have happened to you, but you are a living record of all the people that have come before you. And why that's so powerful is if I hack you, I don't change your grandparents, do I? Okay. And if I go to a, a ledger in distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology, even if I have the ability to hack block D or block E or block F, the record before it is all part of the same core DNA identity that gets passed in by successive generation, baking the past into the future. Okay, so that's that is the really that those big ticket items, those three things, is that we've got something that's distributed. We have this ability to bake like DNA the past into the future, so we've got an immutable record of what happened. And the third thing is is we have something called a consensus mechanism. So when you have one person saying things are the truth in a centralized system, you don't need agreement. But if I take this idea of what's in those blocks and spread them across all these different places and different servers in a distributed, in a distributed way, I need everybody to agree that what is sitting in that block is the same thing. So different blockchain systems have different ways of what I call doing the digital high five. So anytime you hear someone um, talking about a consensus protocol, it's different ways of people getting together, um, sitting in different distributed servers saying, hey, I agree, we all agree, or a percentage of this network agrees that what is sitting in that block is exactly what should be sitting in that block. That's the digital high five. So those three things combine to create a really secure system and a system that doesn't create a honeypot of data because it's, it's spread over lots of different people. Does that, does that give you a little bit of an insight into a blockchain? <laughs> Hopefully. Yes, <laughs> yes, that, that's great. So, so I think that last point is really important when it comes to, for example, cryptocurrencies and why we are, we are seeing the explosion of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and many others. 
that are transferred through the blockchain because of this, what you call the digital high five, everyone agrees that of what the asset is and where it is. And that's what makes it so secure. Or am I misunderstanding? No, you're totally understanding correctly. And you have to understand the countercultural revolution that sits behind distributed ledger technology. And it was a response to traditional banking and payments. So really, the, the real catalyst around the time of the financial crisis was that the, the people who had been uh, responsible for payments, the banks, uh, that wasn't seen by some people as, a, as a, a sensible way to go forward in terms of payments. So Bitcoin was the first blockchain. And there's lots of um, mythology now around Satoshi Nakamoto, who started the blockchain um, revolution. But the Bitcoin blockchain only did something really, really simple. It was a very simple piece of, um, it's a simple algorithm. It's a simple system. It was trying to help you to do the act really of payments uh, from one person to another person or one entity to another entity without using a bank. That's pretty much as simple as it got. But what people realized over time is this set of network, this distributed network was going to be useful for doing something much more complicated than just selling or transferring money. And I use inverted commas when I say money here because we used cryptocurrencies. So these were um, things like Bitcoin, uh, ways of paying for things, uh, but using cryptocurrencies, but not using your traditional players like banks to do that. So that appealed to a lot of people. But then Who Ethereum... Would, why would what is the appeal of that? Why would people want to use Bitcoin instead of dollars? Well, some of it was that um, that anonymity, as you can imagine. It's sort of a pseudo-anonymity, if you will. Uh, but first of all, it really was. It was a crypto-punk response, which is saying we don't want to be part of the traditional system. The traditional system is corrupt. The traditional system is allowing certain institutionalized um, groups to have a lot of power and to make a lot of money. So why do we need them at all? So it really was, it was a philosophical underpinning to say, let's be able to do this outside of, of the system. So it was a new system. And then, of course, there were people who, you know, there's always early adopters. It was a different methodology uh, for doing things, as I said, in a pseudo-anonymous way. But it's, the evolution doesn't stop there because then people realize, and this it, this will start to get closer to what NFTs are, non-fungible uh, tokens, is they start to realize, well, hold on, if I can move something as simple as what's trying to be money or a cryptocurrency to pay for something, why can't I do more complicated things on a network like this, which is when you get the genesis of smart contracting. So instead of just saying how much, when, where, between which parties, which is a very simple idea, people started to say, why can't I move a smart contract which says, if this happens, do this, um, more complex automations, more fields of data in transactions. The Ethereum network was the first big blockchain that allowed you to do that. And they used a different cryptocurrency, an Ether token, to be able to be the, the juice or the, the cash that enabled you to move things around that network. Both of these things sitting outside of our traditional players because they're distributed. They're not held and controlled by a single entity. So, so you mentioned a few interesting things there. Let, let's take them one at a time. Um, you mentioned non-fungible tokens. Uh, what, what are those? How are they different than Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other cryptocurrencies? 
Sure. So, I mean, fungibility, I suppose you'd say it's something that means it's mutually interchangeable. It's replaceable by an identical version without any loss in value. So an example would be if you've got one US dollar, you can swap it for another US dollar. Or you've got a really consistent methodology for how much of one gives you how much of another. And mm. remembering cryptocurrencies are very similar to uh, cash. Um, they have the same idea. I can exchange using a, a tradable rate three um, ether. This is absolutely not true. These numbers I'm going to give you now because it's uh, certainly worth much more. Let's say fifty thousand um, Bitcoin for thirty thousand ether. That's actually not correct, but you get the point. You can use a market to trade consistently and understand. Um, just like currencies across board like currencies. Currency. It's exactly yeah. like currency. Some would say to date that it's been far more volatile in cryptocurrencies, but actually that's not playing out. So there is. That idea that it, fungibility is mutual interchangeability. Non-fungible tokens are quite different because they're unique. So they meet, that means that you are buying something that's not mutually interchangeable. You, you are buying something um, that's still digitally generated. It's still a token of sorts. It's a digital thing you can own, um, but it's 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 got its own scarcity based on its own unique. Uh, unique creation, unique uh, exposure, like a piece of art. So something that some of our listeners may have seen in the news recently is these non-fungible tokens, or NFTs as they're referred to, have had some ridiculously high valuations. I'm going to tick through a few examples. Um, these, a set of, of these pixelated digital characters called CryptoPunks they look like uh, something that an eight-year-old drew on a paint program um, in the 1980s. But they're selling many of them for $50,000, $70,000 now because they were created in 2017. They are some of the original non-fungible tokens. And people see them as, as these sort of collector items. One of them sold recently for $7.56 million. Uh, similarly, NBA, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is creating essentially digital playing cards where they're selling moments from the NBA, famous moments and video clips. And they'll do it like a pack of basketball cards, but rather than buy the pack and touch the cards and see the cards, you're just buying digi a digital group of video clips. And the interesting thing here to me is these video clips you're buying are all online on YouTube available for free, but people are buying them when they're on the blockchain for six figures, $200,000, $300,000 for a single video clip you can watch for free right now on YouTube. Similarly, digital art. There was recently a sale of a piece of digital artwork that anybody can view for free for $69 million. C can you explain any of this? Well, I think I can. And I think that we only look to the past to understand what we'll do in the future. And this is really exciting because it is our foray into the digital realm. And I don't use that term lightly. We are creating this digital twin of ourselves. So it is unsurprising that what we're doing is we are taking this core desire to own things and to flip them and take them into the digital realm. So what you're describing there is you're describing looking at a particular, let's call it a non-fungible token, let's call it an asset, let's just call it a thing. And you're looking at the simplicity or um, the, you know, something like, what is it, uh, the Twitter CEO's tweet 
you know, something that seems like it's something very simple. It even had a spelling error in it, I believe, or a piece of art that's just a scribble. Yeah, you're referring to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, recently NFT'd his first tweet ever and auctioned it off. Correct. And it's not a very fancy tweet. But what we are buying in this instance for many people is the word you used in terms of the MBA, it's moments. And what the distributed ledger technology allows you to be, it allows you to capture a moment in time. It allows you to timestamp something because of that immutable ledger. So it doesn't matter. The digital realm, it's the wild west. It's a, it's a, think of it as a new country. It's a new place. It's a new um, area. And the things, the time that they happened is actually more important than the sophistication of the asset itself. So if, for example, I was to go and go to Mars and I was to find that there was actually someone had been there before and they'd left a piece of garbage, they just left a brown paper bag on there, what would be the value of that brown paper bag? So what you're looking at here is the earliest of these assets will, of course, because they're timestamped, we know when they took place, we know when they were given that timestamp, they themselves become more valuable. Now, what people's motivations for wanting to own those assets are, are as wide and day as they are now here. Some people buy art because they love the piece of art. They have a subjective desire to look at the beauty of the art. Some people are ruthlessly just buying that piece of art because they want it to appreciate in value. And some people um, may just want to keep it for two seconds to on sale and trade it. There are all host of rationales happening behind this work. Some of it's FOMO. Some of it is also um, not appropriate behaviours. There are illegal behaviours which are absolutely taking place in terms of non-fungible tokens right now, which are uh, more akin to money laundering. So people are always trying to find ways to spend cash in a way that can make that cash become sanitised and non-fungible tokens are no different to that. So in some ways it, it could be seen as Indiana Jones finding an ancient artefact that might not be special if it was just knocked off at Disney World or something, but the original artifact, that's what gives it its value. Absolutely. And this timestamp of the exact moment he found it. So nobody else can say it was, was them. It's proof of ownership of that time and the person who has the ownership of that asset. Mm. You mentioned that there's a concern with money laundering. What are some, can you explain that? What are some of the hurdles that lawyers in this space need to be mindful of as, as these NFTs start continue to get bigger and bigger? Well, I would suggest that we're really at, again, a bit of a crossroads for non-fungible tokens, but the crossroads has already been well, um, well discussed for, let's say, three, four, five years now through our securities regulators. So... What's been happening is, again, when we own things or things have value in an analog world or the world that we currently live in, we've got really useful uh, government systems that tell us how to regulate those things. That tell us when we need to pay tax, um, they systems and laws that tell us how to sell them, how to behave in respect of them. When we got into the digital realm and we got to these cryptocurrencies and payments, you're talking about areas that were highly regulated and now you had them sitting outside of regulation. And so, of course, you had to recognize tokens or cryptocurrencies as legitimate things in order to say that the traditional laws applied to them. And mm -hmm. at the start of the crypto journey, and you, you might remember ICO crazes, 
um, uh, initial coin offerings, people would initially say, well, we don't, we're not bound by regulation, the same sort of regulation that would apply to securities and monetization, um, because these are not real things. But of course, very quickly, or some people might say too slowly, securities regulators start to say, well, hold on, you're not just selling a token here, some digital asset. What you're actually trying to do is you're trying to actually um, fundraise. And that's how the, the regulators and the courts have become involved. One of the ways governments around the world have responded to that is they've tried to put um, the ability to find out where people are spending their money and becoming holders of cryptocurrencies by creating licensing and regulations around the place that those things are traded. And that tends to be in cryptocurrency exchanges. So wallet holders and cryptocurrency exchanges now being brought into the normal realm of the law by requiring things like identification, being able to give a suspicious activity reports, those type of things. Now, what comes next? Non-fungible tokens, the same thing is going to happen with the non-fungible token um, uh, uh, trading areas. So even though they're non-fungible, they're still being traded. So questions will be asked of the marketplaces that are trading them as to what is actually the underlying behaviours or motivations that people have for buying and selling these non-fungible tokens. In the art world, for example, if someone pulls off an art heist and has $70 million, a $70 million piece of art, they're going to have a lot of trouble unloading it anywhere. Would that, without it, raising questions, would that happen in the digital world too? If somebody wants to convert a stolen fortune into crypto punks and then into NBA moments and digital art and just sort of run it through this mill, wouldn't that be an easy way to sort of launder the proceeds of a scam and, and then end up cleaning it by the end? Actually, it's um, for now, before it's fully regulated. And, and as far as I can see, really, you have the SEC just really starting to wake up, even in the last couple of weeks, around what's happening with NFTs. And you've got Hester Pierce saying fractionalized sales of NFTs could be illegal. You are at a moment in time where you can possibly get away with it. But the difference between the analog world and moving a piece of real art and I use the word real because I find it funny because what is real, right? Is digital not real? But mm. when you're making that, there's still the same way with cash. There is actually still the ability to money launder um, using those analog processes because nobody knows, people, whoever holds it owns it, right? Whereas once you have NFTs and the marketplaces for NFTs regulated, you're actually going to find that they are more easily regulated by the law because once you are in the digital space and once you have an ID, the best you can be is pseudo-anonymous. So the sort of Hansel and Brettel trail of stones or bread behind them as they transact is highly, um, highly deliverable out of a digital platform system. Um, unlike that piece of art that I could technically just throw in the back of my van if I could get past the security systems in the museum and take it to someone else. The other thing I find interesting here is, unlike with the piece of art where it can be sold somewhere and then resurfaced 20 years later, with the blockchain behind these NFTs, there will always be, as you say, a pseudo-anonymous record of the transfers. And I, I mean, I'd go further and say 
that's using public um, permissionless blockchains. But as I said at the start, a blockchain is not a blockchain is not a blockchain. And what we're finding is when it comes to commercial transactions of an enterprise level, you are increasingly seeing private permissioned blockchains or distributed ledger technology where you are absolutely identified in those systems. And they are set up in such a way, including the architecture, that people who have director's duties, for example, um, and corporate responsibility are able to transact on those blockchains in a way um, that they are accountable and people can see the true nature of those transactions within the actual channels of the people who are trying to do those transactions. You also mentioned smart contracts. I want to I turn, turn to that. Um, of course, all of our lawyer listeners you know, are well familiar with, with contracts. What are smart contracts and how are they different? Okay, I love this question because it is a horrendous trap uh, to equate smart contracts with something else that lawyers should very much be concerned about, which is smart legal contracts. And smart legal contracts are contracts that you and I, when we draft and we have sales of goods or we have projects or finance transactions, the contracts that lawyers normally get involved with, they are legal contracts. Smart contracts, using the definition that's most commonly used on the internet, is just something like what I described to you in the Ethereum ledger. It's a way of moving code in a way that is, is uh, set up on a distributed ledger technology. So it's an automation that's happening on a distributed ledger technology. Smart contract, the word itself, has nothing to do with the legal contract. However, some people use the word smart contract to describe what I'm going to call a smart legal contract. But I think we need to be really careful about that because different people are coming with different mindsets when they use that language. So mm -hmm. let's say, what is a smart legal contract and why is it interesting to lawyers? So a smart legal contract at its most simple, is taking a contract and putting it into digitized form. So you might ask the question, if you're not a computer scientist, well, God, isn't Microsoft Word putting a contract into digitized form? No, it's not. When a contract is in digitized form, it means that a machine can read it. And a machine can read it in a way that they can structure the data. So the most simple of that is that you can actually have it sitting in digitized form of a smart legal contract and then smart legal contracts get really cool when they actually are able to include within the context of a legally binding agreement some portions of the contract which are able to do things, like actually take a clause, for example, in a contract that has a payment condition or take a clause in a contract that looks at a LIBOR rate or looks at a BBSY rate or changes a lease value and make that thing happen from the contract itself having a brain inside of it or coded inside of it. So I like to think of a smart legal contract as the equivalent of putting an executive assistant inside your contract who goes and performs post-legal execution some of the components of the contract. And what that does over time, it takes a contract, which we've all been working for to date, are currently two-dimensional objects, and it makes them three-dimensional objects because you add the time vector and over time, as those contracts are performing themselves, the executive assistant is doing things in your contract and remembering what it's done. It adds data to your legal contract, something that's never happened before. So if, for example, a contract pro provides for a waterfall of payments to, to various folks over time, are you saying that it can automatically execute those payments? Absolutely. And it could 
It can do that by um, combining some notices. It can do that by setting up API calls to other external bodies. It can do that by talking to a back-end system inside a corporate. Your contract can actually, in the future, and they were really at the beginning of the smart legal contract journey, but it can, for example, uh, listen. Your contract could listen to the parliamentary websites to find out, has there been a change in regulation that this contract is nominated under? Hey, I've got business days in here. Um, smart legal contracts of the future, you will never have junior lawyers who are sitting there counting how many business days till a right should be actioned because the contract itself can, using machine, be able to pay attention to those business days and send you a notice, tap you on the shoulder and say, have you exercised this right yet? Or do you want to exercise this right yet? With mm. as much human in the loop or not human in the loop as you want. So will the, you mentioned the junior associate may not be needed to monitor those things. Wouldn't the smart legal contract put us all out of business? Those waterfall payments, you know, right now the way it works is maybe somebody misses a payment or it's late. We end up interpreting the contract, litigation ensues, and companies fight for years over these payments. What you're telling me is that the smart legal contract can do all of that. Um, well, this, it, I mean, look, there's a, there's a cost basis here. So whenever you add an automation to a contract, that's going to cost you something. So the analog system is uh, there's going to be a transition over time. And ultimately, there is going to be a massive shakeup of the legal profession, exactly the same as you see in any other profession or any other industry that goes through its digitization journey. And the law is a little bit slower than most um, domains. Something that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, our, our professional responsibilities and our duties to the court, that actually as a domain, we have had to be slightly slower because the law shouldn't be something that sort of moves with the wind, so to speak. Uh, but we have, as we see uh, data sets grow, as we see domains in health and medicine and science become increasingly reliant on data and data being the mother's milk of AI and increasingly move to a digitized AI version of what they do, if the law becomes out of step uh, with those other domains, we're actually in danger of being unable to perform our duties as officers of the court. So I would suggest that we are definitely going to have, in the next two to three years, maybe five years, we're going to see increasingly, first of all, people just playing around with these technologies. Then you're going to see people adding them, realising that, of course, to automate something often makes it cheaper and more efficient. You're going to see a, people paying attention to what are the risks of adding automations. And you're going to see the same way we saw technology-assisted review happening over discovery, that actually you had better discovery results using AI than you did from just putting a stack of junior lawyers on there, that you do get, unfortunately or fortunately, you can get more consistent results by using AI. So smart contracts will give you data, data gives you AI, that is absolutely going to impact our profession. And I would suggest that you are still going to need lawyers, you absolutely will need lawyers but the lawyers themselves will change the nature of what they do. One thing is that lawyers right now tend to sit at the start of a transaction, help put it together, and then they tend to come in again when we fight about something at the end of a transaction um, mm -hmm. or if there's a problem. But we don't tend to sit in the middle of a contract when it's going nicely or that's just called business. We don't, we don't sit with our clients during that time of business. Uh, but what smart legal contracts do is they give the ability to lawyers to actually pay attention to the performance of that contract. It aligns you more closely to that performance. So there's going to be some more different work. 
um, there's going to be a change in what we do in the nature of our legal profession. And, uh, you know, have you have you heard about GTP3? No, tell me. Okay, so GTP3 is a new algorithm. And what it does is it enables the production of natural language. So if you think about, and I would encourage your listeners to go away and really start looking at GTP3. It, it, there's a beautiful manifestation that it puts together to auto-generate poetry. And if you look at that and you just say, what comes next? Our profession has largely been built on the creation of words and the interpretation of words. And we can see now, based on these algorithms, that the creation of words and the analysis of words and decision-making around those words is something that computers or machines or algorithms or however you want to scope it are being better and better able to do. So you cannot put your head in the sand when it comes to a change to the future profession of what it means to be a lawyer. Mm. In some ways, won't it make the initial drafting of the contract even more important? By, By that I mean in the United States, for example, there's an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing in every contract where if something isn't entirely clear, well, you know, the courts can say, you're, you really have a duty of good faith for it to mean this. But with a smart contract or a smart legal contract, at least, doesn't that sort of interpretation of, of good faith just go away because the computers are going to, they're going to do the, take the word for exactly what it means. So, yeah, so if you, if going back to these definitions of smart contract versus smart and legal contract, smart contract, absolutely, it wouldn't work because they're too logic-based. They need to be very black and white. They need to set preconditions that are exactly met. Smart legal contracts are far more hybrid. They allow you to incorporate natural language and capture all those subtleties and requirements of reasonableness and good faith at the same time as being able to transform those clauses which is a value in automating um, into a digitized manifestation. So smart legal contracts get you both. They, they enable you to have both. So, so let's move away from smart legal contracts for a second. You mentioned smart contracts are essentially, I'm, I'm probably misstating this, but rules on the blockchain yep. that get followed. Um, what are some of the applications we're seeing for this and what could we see in the future? So say, for example, smart contracts, look, they're they're happening everywhere and they tend to be uh, domain or industry specific. So you might say someone has set up a a smart contract to just make sure that if airfares are purchased and then those airfares are not used, that there's an automatic refund. So in terms of what's happening, you're literally just looking at self-executing code. It's nothing terribly dramatic or interesting or new. Um, The only thing that's different about a smart contract is it's happening on DLT infrastructure, not a centralised database. So the actual act of automation is happening. um, If this happens, do this. It's happening on a distributed ledger system, whereas that is a piece of technology that's been happening, you know, for a long time. It just normally happens through a um, a centralised entity. Uh, so yeah, airfares. Um, you, you, pretty much, I'm I'm going to struggle here because there's almost nothing if you can describe it, and then you can set it up into some fields of data and say when there's seven of these, do three of these. If this is late, send this person a notice. Anything you can describe in that manner and then set out in code can be populated in a smart contract. So from a gambler's perspective. Um, where 
the way that the lawmakers have attacked gambling historically, as we've seen from some of my past episodes, has been to say the websites that that take these bets, that take sports bets or that run poker games, well, transferring money to and from those is going to be illegal. Or maybe they're illegal to run to begin with. But with smart contracts, can't we get rid of this middleman and just and, and make sort of betting completely decentralized? I, I think that's right. But sometimes, um, look, there's a bit of a pendulum effect that goes on. But let's let's give the example of betting and talk about smart contracts. And let's make the analog of uh, trading, share trading. So when you hear about share trading and you might set yourself some parameters in your share trading portfolio where you say purchase between this price and this price. Mm-hmm. What you actually just described, if it was run on a blockchain, is a smart contract. So that kind of behaviour is a simplistic set of rules um, that are sitting in a smart contract. So, of course, that set of rules being set applies perfectly to gambling. But what's the difference? The architecture is over a decentralised platform. What When we have, again, this crypto-punk psychology of saying, oh, that's really exciting, that's really great because it pulls out an intermediary, Maybe that's true. Um, But what I tend to see in this industry is it just makes new intermediaries. Because even if you're sending something um, over a distributed ledger technology or a blockchain, uh, we're just seeing new uh, corporates, new entities who are the people who are setting up uh, those areas in gambling. Um, There's there's an entire new uh, group of markets which are set up around NFTs. These are all new companies, OpenSea, Rarible, Super Raw, Foundation, Atomic Market. These are new companies, they have humans behind them. They have tax obligations. They have regulatory yeah. obligations. And the same thing, even though we talk about pulling out the middleman, um, smart legal contracts, smart contracts, digital assets, DLT, it pulls out the middleman. But there always has to be somebody there behind the system who's actually responsible for it. And just to go slightly sideways on that, you might have heard at one point about distributed autonomous organisations or DAOs. Even the DAO, which was truly trying to be using a smart contract and an autonomous organisation, which had no owner, the courts were still able to find an owner because of the person who set it up. So nothing really is truly distributed. And what I've seen in the digital asset spaces, even though we move it out to a distributed landscape, what tends to happen is it becomes an aggregation of power um, still in a centralised way amongst a centralised few. Mm. That, is a, that is a great transition to the one other thing I wanted to chat with you about, which is going to a, sort of a, a darker place. The blockchain has opened the window for all sorts of, of different scams, but based on the perceived anonymity in particular of cryptocurrency, but what we've seen lately is that maybe it's not so anonymous. Um, one famous example from last year is a teenager hacked the Twitter accounts of Donald Trump as well as a number of other celebrities and put a request for, for Bitcoin up and ended up, I think, getting about $200,000 worth of Bitcoin sent to him. And he recently got caught, even though the Bitcoin transfers, at least he thought, were anonymous. What are some ways that people can track down these supposedly anonymous cryptocurrency receivers? 
So again, the the primary way now that we can look at, at who's doing what is ultimately you need to have moved, to, in order to purchase cryptos at first instance, you need to have moved from the traditional money supply. So the way that you move from the traditional money supply, just say you or I want to go and buy some cryptos, how do you do that? You go to Coinbase, you go to an, any uh, cryptocurrency exchange and you purchase cryptos at first instance. So mm. first of all, you come on record there. You start putting your identification into the system. Then if you go onto uh, Bitcoin blockchain or you go into Ethereum, you still you get a unique identifier of who you are. Um, but as I said, it's pseudo-anonymous. It, it allows them to basically be able to to see, uh, generate areas of transactions. Right. In some, in some cases, as we sort of have hinted throughout this podcast, um, the transfer of assets on the blockchain is actually more traceable than the transfer of certain other assets because the digital record lives forever. Absolutely. And that that is a way to get caught. So the moral of the story is... Uh, Talk to a lawyer and don't assume, don't assume you're getting away with anonymous transfers. Exactly. Um, even if this is one thing I've learned from being a digital lawyer, even if you think it's okay now, because it doesn't seem to be the landscape of a clear regulatory impingement, down the track, your digital asset may actually cause you to have a regulatory a regu regulatory slip. So do, if it, there's basically work on the assumption that anything you would do, if you were raising funds in the normal market, if you were um, doing anything, if it wasn't a crypto, it was the analog version of the crypto that you're providing, it will have in time the same regulatory obligations around tax, the same regulatory obligations around um, fundraising, around payments, all of those things catch up eventually and you do not want to be on the wrong side of the law on those things. Right. All these companies and big banks um, are adopting crypto, investing in crypto and, and going down that route. And this sort of emphasizes the importance of seeking out lawyers like you that deal in this space on the front end before something before something goes wrong. Absolutely. And and you can you can play here and it's an exciting space. And, you know, we have the digital law group at HSF. The, you're, you're dealing with a bunch of nerds. They're lawyers who are excited about um, the future in this digital realm. Um, so just be very careful as you move through, but you can move through and you can do it in a way that protects your interests in the future. Natasha, thank you so much for joining me. Where can folks find you? Is there an email address or a Twitter handle? Well, I think the best place to find me, and this is going to show my age, is probably on LinkedIn. And I am an active LinkedIn sharer of information. Great. So everyone should feel free to contact Natasha through LinkedIn with further questions. Natasha Bleicher. I'm Stephen Jacobs. I can be reached at Stephen B. Jacobs on Twitter or Stephen.Jacobs at HSF.com. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling and now crypto law. If you liked what you heard, please hit the subscribe button. We'll have great new guests and discussions on each episode every two weeks. As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and not legal advice. Thanks again, Natasha. Until next time. Thank you. Bye.